Let me start by asking you a question. Have you ever fallen in love and then out of love with someone? Maybe uh, that's not a phrase we like very much, you know, falling in love, as if love were like a, a hole you just sort of accidentally tripped and fell into or something. Uh, some sort of mere emotional whim or passion, something we had no control over, which isn't, we know, true biblical love. That's not what love is really like. But nevertheless, it perhaps is something we can relate to, falling in and out of love. Maybe that's really painful for you to think about. A once loving relationship you've had that started off so passionately and romantic, butterflies in your stomach, you know, daydreaming all the time sort of thing. But then for some reason, it grew cold. The love went away. And eventually, the relationship died. What about your love for Jesus? What are the signs our love for him is fading dying or just no longer there and what do we do about that since after all loving him is the most significant relationship we could ever have well 2000 years ago another church was struggling with this too the problem was it was really really hard for them to see Everything on the outside looked really, really good. Uh, they were the kind of church you would definitely want to join. But inside, they were loveless. Only a personal, direct letter from Jesus himself was able to show them what the problem was and what they needed to do about it. And that's what we're going to be looking at here today in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Graham had the, the really daunting uh, task of preaching Revelation chapter 1, but he helpfully guided us through that amazing vision of the Lord Jesus Christ um, that the Apostle John was seeing and writing down. And uh, the book of Revelation sort of dramatically, vividly describes how Jesus will work out his salvation in the universe, how he will win his victory over sin and evil, how he will end the world and remake it brand new. But we start here in the beginning of the letter, after that great vision of Jesus, with Jesus himself addressing seven churches with seven letters. Now, these were real churches at the time, and they were there written to encourage and warn those churches. But they're also for our benefit as well. We get to kind of read somebody else's mail this morning and benefit from what's being said. Now, each of these seven letters follows a kind of very similar sort of structure and pattern. You're going to see this as we go through these letters in different ways. Usually having some sort of reference to something about Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. And then you'll have something about what Jesus is pleased with, a commendation. But then you'll get maybe a criticism, something the churches are doing wrong that needs to improve. Now, some churches have more of one than the other, uh, but yet each letter ends with a promise from Jesus to those who overcome. You'll see that word again. And lots of these themes, if you were to go on studying through the book of Revelation, themes here will come up again and again throughout 
Revelation. But we're starting with the first letter today, the letter to the Ephesians. This is his church. Look at verse 1 again with me, please. The, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So first of all, all seven letters start with this uh, address to an angel, the angel of each church. Now that word angel there, you're probably thinking, you know, White robes, big kind of wings floating around, something like that. Kind of a spiritual angelic being. And here they, they, they maybe are representing the churches as if each church has at least one guardian angel. Think of that. Maybe we've got a guardian angel. And after Revelation, it's a book, it kind of peels back the veil so we get to see this spiritual world we don't normally see. There's this spiritual dynamic. Us meeting now, there is a spiritual layer to it as well we don't see. Um, or this word angel might be a person. That word angel just simply means a messenger. So maybe it's the pastor or the person reading the letter to the church. Maybe John has both ideas in mind. The key thing is that the angels, it says, are held in his right hand. You see, at the end of chapter 1, you might be able to see it there in your Bible, in verse 20, it tells us that the stars he's holding there are the angels of the churches. And they're held by Jesus. What a great comfort to know Jesus is holding his church, especially in really difficult times. But he doesn't just hold them, it says he is among them. Again, that's imagery taken from chapter 1. Jesus, uh, the uh, the churches are like lampstands. Children, on your sheet you'll see little lamps I've drawn there that you can colour in. Uh, Lampstands that shine out for Jesus into a dark world. They bear witness to him while Jesus himself is among them. He's with them. He's always nearby. He never leaves them. But lastly, by way of just of introducing this letter and this church, let's talk about Ephesus themselves in particular. It's a very famous church. Um, there's another longer letter addressed to them in the New Testament called the Book of Ephesians. You can't really miss it. Paul wrote that, though. And we also know a lot about their origins. If you read the book, uh, book of Acts, we've been thinking about Acts today, Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20, you'll see a fascinating uh, history of how the church got going and some of the things they had to face and they were especially privileged this church to have the apostle Paul himself be their pastor and teacher for about three years he didn't often spend that long anywhere but Paul did with them they they had a great start and interestingly if you read the book of Ephesians in Paul's letter in chapter 1 verses 1 verses 15 Paul commends them for being a faithful and a loving church. A faithful and a loving church. But sadly, it didn't stay that way. Some 30 years later, here in Revelation 2, although they remained faithful, they were no longer loving. But Jesus doesn't start there. We'll come to that in a minute. He starts off with the good stuff in verses 2 to 3 and also verse 4. This is his commendation. 
Look at verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Notice, first of all, that phrase, I know. It comes up in all of the letters. Christ has a personal knowledge of his people. He sees, he knows, even when no one else sees or knows. And here he knows that the Ephesians have worked hard. They've toiled in serving Jesus, even under very difficult circumstances. And therefore, he also knows all about their perseverance. That word means they just kept going and going and going. Um, Ephesus was a a key Roman port city. Um, It was a hub of pagan worship it had this famous temple you can't see the picture there you can only see ruins today this famous temple of artemis one of the seven wonders of the world everyone around them in ephesus worshipped other gods and idols and and christians were often treated poorly they were shunned they were persecuted or, or worse but in that environment the ephesians kept going they didn't give up they worked hard for Jesus. And verse 3 says more. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. It's easy to give up on Christianity. It's easy to give up on Jesus when things are hard and tough and when we are suffering, but not the Ephesians. They didn't grow weary. It says they couldn't tolerate evil either, it says. They refused to go along with the evil and immoral ways of the people around them. They were a holy church. They were also a discerning church. They could tell truth from error because they tested, it says here, some apostles and found them to be false. They could tell who was legitimately sent from Jesus teaching the truth and who wasn't. And that also means they were committed to what we could call doctrinal orthodoxy, right? They believed the truth, they had the right truth and nothing but the truth. Look at verse 6. You have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, look, no one really knows exactly who the Nicolaitans are. Um, They get mentioned again in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. And there they're associated with Balaam and Balak. These were two Old Testament characters. But they had led the people into sin and immorality. But whoever they were and exactly what they taught isn't as important as the fact that Jesus hated their practices. And the Ephesians hated it too. Now look, these are all marks of a great church, aren't they? Churches who are hardworking in serving God, who persevere when it gets hard, who know the truth and can spot false doctrine and heresy, who hate evil and want to be holy. You'd want to belong to a church like that, wouldn't you? These are all things many churches today are in fact desperately lacking often, in fact. And so we must examine ourselves in the light of the things Jesus is commending them for. Would Jesus commend us for the same things? But there's a problem. For all this good, they had a fatal flaw. And that brings us to verse 4 and Christ's condemnation. 
Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Despite their hard work, despite their commitment to holiness, their doctrinal orthodoxy, the Ephesians had fallen away from their first love. Now this was a really serious problem. It was a fatal cancer in the hearts of the Ephesians. And it was so serious, Christ threatens, in verse 5, that he would remove their lampstand altogether. In other words, they would no longer exist as a church. It's possible to have hard work and service in a church, dozens of ministries, busyness, but have no love for Jesus. It's possible to hate evil and love what is good, to be good people, obedient, righteous, but have no love for Jesus. It's possible even to persevere and endure persecution and opposition, but have no love for Jesus. It's possible to know the truth, to be doctrinally and biblically completely sound, but have no love for Jesus. Love is the essence and heart of true religion, true Christianity. Now, you know, you might want to break it down and talk about, well, there's love for your neighbor and then there's love for God. But you can't really separate them. To truly love your neighbor, you need to love God. And to truly love God is to truly love your neighbor. The greatest command Jesus gives his people is to love him with all their heart, mind, soul and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. A church can have everything a church could want, but without love it has nothing. The love the Ephesians had forsaken was their first love. Or we could say the love they had at first. This is a love that characterized them in the beginning. Do you remember those in the beginning days for you? Or can you at least remember a time when your love for Jesus was just sky high? I remember when I first became a Christian. And I was just blown away by his grace to me. The world just seemed to look differently now. I was insatiable for his word. I was crying every Sunday in church because now it was real to me. I love to talk about Jesus with people too. Unafraid to approach folks. I remember sitting in school on my free periods with my open Bible and people would come and they would ask me, what are you doing, Dwelly? They used to call me Dwell or Dwelly, right? And I'd say, well, I'm reading my... And I'd, get to, I'd love to talk to people about Jesus. 
In fact, uh, a guy called G.K. Beale, who wrote probably one of the most highly regarded commentaries on Revelation, he says that this love that they had lost was a love for Jesus that led them to be a witness for him in the world. And he ties it into that theme of the lampstand, which is key to this part of the letter. Um, a lampstand, think of it, it's a source of light that gives light to the whole room. This is what a church should be, shining Jesus into the darkness of the world. A lampstand is about being a witness. It's, it's, a, it's a proclaiming people, declaring to lost people the good news about Jesus. Children, you might remember we built a church out of Duplo last week, didn't we? And we put a lamp on top to represent the church being the light of the world. And Jesus himself said, our love will show the world that we are truly his disciples. So that's really, if you think about it, that's the height of love for Jesus and other people, isn't it? You know, if you discover something that's just really, really fantastic, something wonderful in your life, um, even something trivial, you know, you go to a new restaurant or you pick up a new product from somewhere or you find this great website online. You love it. You know, we use that word flippantly, but you love it. And because you love it, you want to share it with other people. You not only appreciate it, but you want to share it with others. And if you love them too, all the more reason to share it with them. I'm going to share this with you because I love you too. So the height of love is not only to appreciate something yourself, but to share it with others. There's perhaps no greater height of love for Jesus or for another person than sharing the good news about Jesus with others. This was the kind of thing the Ephesians had stopped doing. So here's really, is an indication that you or your church, our church, has forsaken our first love for Jesus like this. We stop shining for him. When evangelism, witnessing, telling others, reaching out to others, to lost people, when that's missing. And it's so easy, isn't it, to think. You know, when we get comfortable in our nice ministries... When we take pride in our doctrinal purity, you know, we're the, we're the tr most truthful church in town kind of thing. When, when we stay faithful to Jesus even when it's hard, we can think we're okay because we've got all of these things. But if we stop loving Jesus so much that we stop loving people enough to share Jesus with them, then something's gone wrong. This was a problem at Ephesus. But... Jesus is kind enough and gracious enough not to leave them that way, but to also warn them and urge them to come back. Listen, this is true, isn't it? There is always a way back with Jesus. There is always a way back with Jesus. Some of you need to hear that this morning. And so we come then, fourthly, to his command to them. Look at verse 5. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There are three things we see Jesus tells them here to do uh, if we've lost our first love. 
Remember, repent, and return. Firstly, remember. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. Jesus, like any good lover, is wooing them back. Remember how good it was between us in the beginning? Remember how amazed you were by my grace and forgiveness. Remember how much my love for you just blew your mind. Remember how you'd be looking forward to spending time with me in church or every day. Remember how you were ready to give everything for me. Jesus is wooing them. He's rekindling that love again. So he's calling them back. He's calling us back to remember the heights of love we've had with him. (coughs) Remembering can stir us up, you see, to want to go back. I want that again. I miss that. It grows. It stirs up our hunger and desire for it. Have you had this experience? Maybe... I don't know, but maybe you've been looking through some old family photos of a holiday that you went on once. And you, oh, what's, do you remember that? Oh, that wasn't that fan. Oh, do you remember that? That was great, wasn't it? Uh, the kids have been telling me all about Keswick this week. They've been up in Keswick, and I didn't get to go with them. But we were talking about it, and they were showing me pictures. And like, oh, we did this. And, oh, next year. Next year we get to go back. And next year we get to do it all again. It kind of looking at the photos, remembering, stirred up a desire to get back to it. Can you see? remembering can woo you back and then he says repent remember now repent repentance means to remembrance is that a new word repentance means to change your mind about something it's to decide I don't want to live like this anymore I don't want to, to, to have hard work and perseverance and orthodoxy and holiness but no love I don't want that I want to get back to what I had before a, a, a change of mind But notice what it looks like here. Repentance isn't just a change of thinking, but a change of action too. Do the things you did at first, he says. And so thirdly, return, return. Don't wait until you start feeling something again. He doesn't say, start loving me again. He doesn't say that. Start feeling affection for me again. He says, do the things you did before. It's interesting. This is great advice for any relationship, say between a husband and a wife, to refresh their love. Instead of waiting for those feelings, just start doing the loving thing. Spend quality time together. Talk. Show kindness to each other. Give gifts. Show affection. Whatever it is that that seemed to be so natural before when you really knew you were in love, let's say, start doing that again. So, spend extra time with Jesus in prayer, reading his word. You know, when you feel your love for Jesus is waning and low and it's not really there, spending extra time with him seems counterintuitive. Getting excited for church, you know, build yourself up for it. Read the Bible passage that's going to be preached on the night before. Um, Get up early. Uh, Don't... um, Rush off afterwards uh, so you've got a, a chance for fellowship with each other. Things like that. Get involved with the ministry and give yourself wholeheartedly to it. Use your gifts. Seek a way to share the gospel with someone, a stranger, someone you know. 
Do the things you did at first. And what you'll find, as you do them, your heart will begin to follow. (coughs) You see, biblical love isn't just a feeling, it's an action, a commitment to do the loving thing. A commitment to do the loving thing. So remember, repent, return, a commitment to do the loving thing. And it's so serious that if we don't, we risk losing it all. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There'll be judgment if we don't. We'll lose our lampstand. We'll be snuffed out as a church. It's a serious issue. But if we take it seriously, and if we do respond like this, then look finally at Christ's promise in the final verse here. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We could say Revelation is a book about overcoming, overcoming or conquering. Word comes up a lot in Revelation. That word overcoming there means to conquer or to win in the face of obstacles, to be victorious. And so Jesus encourages the Ephesians and all the churches, that's us as well, to overcome, we could say specifically, our lovelessness. And if we do, he promises the right to eat from the tree of life. I don't know, children, if you recognise that phrase, the tree of life. Where else do we see a tree of life in the Bible? Sophia, do you remember? Or what were you going to say? Something about the tree of life. From the Lion King. From the Lion King. The circle of life. We're thinking of the circle of life. Is there a tree of life? Is there a tree of life? Oh, I forgot about that. Elsie, what do you think? You're absolutely right. There's a tree of life, isn't it, in the Adam and Eve story. Right back in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, chapters 1 to 3, in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God gave this tree of life. And Adam and Eve had access to that tree, and it was the source of eternal life. And essentially, that tree represents Jesus. He's the one who gives us eternal life. And that tree is located, not this tree here, is, is, it's not in Eden, but in the paradise of God, it says. Now, uh, if you were to go on and read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you'll see this paradise of God uh, worked out a bit more. It's, it's the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus returns, he conquers all evil and sin and puts an end to death. He remakes the world. Heaven and earth are united forever. That's our destiny. Eternal life with Jesus in his new heavenly world. You see, this is the desire of people who love Jesus. It's not the mansions we're after. It's not the treasures in heaven we're longing for. We want Jesus himself the tree of life that's what we want because that's who we want and those who love jesus get jesus 
Those who love Jesus get Jesus. Those who do not love Jesus get nothing. Do you want Jesus? Do you want him? Do you love him? We read those amazing words from 1 John 4 earlier. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, remember this. In your remembering, remember this. It all starts with his love for you. You are not saved. You don't get paradise because you love God first. That's not first love here. You are promised paradise because he loved you first. And because he loved you, he died for you. The works of his love are that he sacrificed his life to pay for all your sin. Dear friends, don't you know? Don't you know? That even when you're at your worst, even when you're at your most sinful, God still loved us and sent his son to rescue us. That's how you know. Can you hear what the spirit is saying to the church this morning? God says, I love you. And I'm inviting you to love me too. To trust me and my son and find eternal life. Isn't that what you want? I wonder if you've ever done that. Have you ever put your trust in Jesus? Have you ever thought about loving him? If you want your love for Jesus to be rekindled this morning, start here. Meditate on. Remember the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. We Love because he first loved us. And through that love, his for us and ours then for him, we have the right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus has much to commend them. They were a great church on the outside. But it's also an important warning to us that a church without love, though they have all of this, is doomed. But we also see his grace here, the Lord's grace. He shows us the way back, the way of repentance, the way of love again. So may the Spirit truly speak to you and to me this morning. May he restore our love to the heights again.